Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. The Hellmouth Con. The Hellmouth Convention is back, and it's hosting a spectacular event in the place of all places, Torrance High School, the shooting location for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Join us June 15th, 2024 for one day only. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center and the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. Visit thehellmouth.org for details. SoonerCon 32. Oklahoma City's longest-running premier pop culture convention returns June 21st through 23rd, 2024. Prepare for three days of cosplay, crafts, tabletop gaming, and legendary guests, all in the friendly town of Norman, Oklahoma. To give back to the community, fundraisers and a live charity auction will be held. Visit SoonerCon.com to reserve your membership. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. One of the things I love most about the wide variety of guests that I invite in this show is that I get to see people at all stages of their creative journey. And that might be somebody who's just a fan trying something new, or they might be just getting started in the industry, or they could be a living legend, and anywhere in between. But when I say that, it sometimes does a disservice because it doesn't acknowledge that creativity is not a linear journey. You might be a rock star in one area of your creative life, and you might be just trying baby steps in another. And today's guest is a great example of that. Jerry Carita is somebody who has a fantastic resume when it comes to television production, But we're looking at somebody who's also trying to break into independent comics, and he's got some great material in both, and I want to talk about that right now. On mic today, we have Jerry Carita. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I have said to a previous guest on the show by the name of Ming Chen that I, the show Comic Book Men was the show that made me actually love a reality tv show which up until that point had never happened before so yeah. i want to thank you for drawing me into that universe oh absolutely I'm, I'm i'm you know i'm it's that show is like the gift that keeps on giving for me it's it's the show that you're saying drew you into reality tv for the first time it's the show that drew me into comics okay you know that, that's very never, fair yeah i was never into like my geek thing when i was a kid was tv more than anything i used to watch mm-hmm. star trek with my mom and uh, that was like the first, that was my first foray into geek stuff. But um, it wasn't until I was making that show and sitting in a comic book shop for hours a day with those guys. And they were arguing like, what would you do if you found a piece of Superman's poop and things like that, that um, I just started falling in love with all that. And then my first comic book was uh, The Walking Dead. That's the first book I really read beginning to end or up until, you know, where it was at that point um, on set on that show. And so it's a great, it's, it's a great show. I've worked with Kevin a few times since then. Walt Flanagan did a cover for me. I do, I'm doing a live launch with Ming Chen next week. You know, we, we keep in touch. I play poker with Mike Zapsic every once in a while. Um, Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It was a great show. It was a great experience. I had to bring it up because I don't hear that show talked about enough these days, but for people in my little sphere, it was huge. And I just want to make sure you get the accolades you deserve. I, now you're coming to me here telling me you're working on a, a comic book project of your own. And I'm pretty stoked about that. Yeah, I am too. It's my it's my second one. I've actually got a, a bunch of different comic book projects that are sort of in, in the works right now. Some of them I'm writing. Some mm-hmm. of them are, um, you know, things I'm publishing that I'm not writing. 
So, you know, and a lot of them are being funded through, at least right now through Kickstarter. And my plan is down the road to get them in comic book stores in a more traditional way. But um, yeah, like a bunch of my friends on the set of comic book men started a production company called Blue Juice Comics. And they did Ann Bonnie, a book called The Accelerators. Most recently, they do a series called Billy the Kit. Um, Ann Bonnie is actually coming back later this year. Um, so I started working with them about three years ago. Uh, and that's how I got to where I am now. I started learning the business side of it first, and then I started writing my own books. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride. And I got I came to this game late, but you know everybody in this world is like so gracious and and nice. It's like it's weird after spending so much time in TV. It's just weird that everybody's nice and supportive. You know, I've heard that from people who aren't really into comics, but who observe the hobby from outside. Is that we are we appear to be a very chill group of people in the grand scheme of things, which the stereotypes don't bear that out, but my experience does. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, everyone always says that, that line that what is it? A rising tide lifts all ships. Like people always say that and they don't, and they don't mean it in my experience. You know, they really don't mean it. They let, they like a rising tide lifts all ships. As long as it, as long as it's raising me, then I'm good. Mm -hmm. um that's what they really mean but in the comics world like i'm in all these discord groups now like i've been welcomed by all these guys who are pretty prominent you know creators that fund a lot through kickstarter and have been hitting the convention circuit for years people like travis gibb and charlie stickney and frank martin and you know um just all these dudes who um uh and, and, and women too who just any question you know you like these guys like charlie and pat shand like they don't really need to answer questions anymore they have little empires they're building they do very they do very well but you know anyone new people in these groups will just be like what should i how many variant covers should i get into a kickstarter campaign and they're happy to write 10 messages and get into a comp like a conversation with you about it and just kind of talk you through their experience and help you get started it really is like super supportive and nice and i, I i've really enjoyed the whole thing it's great Doing what I do, I have I've really sought out independent comic book creators and independent projects. And I found no matter how far I go in, there's always one more person out there putting out a book and one more company helping them out and one more team that's supporting them. And I love it because it's like I said, there's never really a bottom to that well. And right now I'm looking at the project you have here called the Grizzly Crew. And yes, sir. I <laughs> I love this for a lot of reasons, but I'll say the short version is that it's a, a group of pirate bears who are fighting the bad pirate bears. And I know I'm not I'm doing a disservice, but I, I love the direction we're going here. Do you want to flesh that out a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So so it's um it, it, in the story, um, it, the story starts in a, in a little town seaside and there are these really scary pirates. They're all humans. And so there's really scary human pirates attacking this village. And, you know, the next night the kids in the village can't sleep. And so to try and like soothe them and make them not afraid anymore, their dad starts telling them a story and tells them like, you kids don't need to worry anymore. We hired the grizzly crew. So they're protecting the village and we're all good. And the kids are like, what's, what's a grizzly crew? Like you're, they, they smell that dad is like lying to them a little bit, you know? Um, but he starts telling a story. And then most of this, most of the book then is in the story where there's one pirate ship filled with bears and that pirate ship goes around protecting human villages from these evil pirates. And um, that's sort of where it starts. And then from there, it, it becomes like, I have three kids and uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of co-created the story with one of my kids. And so a lot of the characters in it are based on my kids, they're based on my family. And you know, I have a tendency with my kids to start to tell them stories or watch movies with them that are like, 
you know, just on the wrong side of age appropriate. So, mm-hmm. you know, something my my son like was probably too little to see the Incredible Hulk rendered as like a a real looking thing in CGI for the first time when he did. So he's been afraid of the Incredible Hulk ever since. Um, things mm-hmm. like that, you know, where you don't know until it's too late that you that you mess that up. So it, it's the story becomes about that. It, the dad is telling the story. He gets a little out of out of hand. He's an unreliable narrator. So he gets a little out of hand. He gets a little too scary. Mom has to come in and retell part of the story and kind of change the direction and make it more of a bedtime story again. And it kind of, you know, will we even do that for, I have a five issue arc that I have like outlined. And so this is just the first issue, but that's the story. That's the whole, it's a story within a story. It's got like shades of, you know, um, the princess bride and um, artistically, like one of the creative touchstones was, you know, the jungle book and tailspin and like gummy bears and all these like cartoons I watched when I was a kid that I watch now with my son. I can see um, that for sure. It shines through. Yeah. Uh, for your son's benefit, I just have to throw this out there. I'm 42 now, but uh, roughly about 38, 39 years ago, I was terrified of Lou Ferrigno on The Incredible Hulk. I That messed me up so bad. I don't know why, but he was, yeah, that scared me to death. Dude was scary, man. That yeah. guy was scary. He never spoke. He just grunted. He just would, mm-hmm. you know, like just rip through a man's shirt and then and then rip through all of his enemies and then like fall asleep. You know, it's like, um, yeah, I mean, I totally get it. My son was afraid of, he was afraid of Sesame Street for a while because the count scared the hell out of him. Okay. The count, like just as soon as anyone started going one, two, three, he would like run out of the room. So as a result, if he saw Elmo or Ernie or anything, he would just run away because he assumed the count was coming soon. As for this book in particular, what I love about it is that it's kind of correcting a an oversight we've had in comics for a while now. It used to be that it was hard to get comics that really were age that all ages comics that had a broad appeal. It's, the two didn't always go together. Either you had comics that the little kids would like, the adults wouldn't grab onto at all, or you right. had comics that shouldn't be within ten feet of an actual child. And, and this is one of those comics that is going to actually satisfy both niches. I, I really hope so. I think like, you know, because it's being told from the perspective of parents, I'm 43, I have three kids. So we're about the same age. And, you know, so we probably have a lot of the same shows and, and things we used to read and watch and, and all that when we were kids. And so, you know, there's a lot of references to those things. There's a lot of like, I, you know, I just said it's a, it, it shades of the Princess Bride and all those things. Um, so I, I really hope it does because I, you know, parents will read it and be familiar with the scenarios where you're trying to get your kid to not be afraid and go to sleep at night, um, and the fun stories you tell and all that. And I, I just hope kids enjoy the art and like the little story and and have fun, you know. So I, I hope it I, does. It's is this all hand drawn uh, work? Yeah. It, it so has my that art feel to it. Yeah. Yeah, my artist is Nick Justice. So I'll I'll just to come clean and be honest about how it started. Um, it all it all started because of an it, one of the AI things, you know. It like three years ago, the day Mid Journey came out, when it was you know kind of functional for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in my office and I was messing around with it, and I had like a bunch of like for another story I was working on, um, Cicada Samurai, which is a book I already did on Kickstarter. Um, I had all these weird like bugs with swords like images on my screen and my son came in and was like what is that he was six and he was like what is this and i told him and then he said can it make a spider-man monkey and I'm like, i don't know let's see spider-man monkey and it did and then um minion wizard and it made a minion wizard 
And then he asked for a pirate bear. And then I made one and mid journey, especially when it first came out, would make these like horrific kind of mutated faces. So he was just staring at, it. I know he's afraid of bears. So he was just kind of staring at it. And then suddenly he just started telling me the story, like out of literally like two minutes of him staring at it, kind of processing whatever was in his head. And suddenly he goes, um, dad, his name is Captain Grizzly. And I was like, sorry, what? And he's like, "My name, his name, the bear, his name is Captain Grizzly. He's the captain of a pirate ship and they're all bears on the ship. And I was like, oh, that's fun. And I was still kind of ignoring him and like writing whatever I was writing over here. And then he goes, they go around and they sail looking for, for, for treasure. But when they get the treasure, it's not gold. It looks like gold, but it's not gold, dad. And I'm like, okay, like, what is it? He goes, it's wax. You squeeze it, it's filled with honey. Because bears like honey, dad. And I'm like, hold on, let me start taking notes. And then he goes, it's called the Grizzly Crew. He named it like in the first 30 seconds and just telling me about this picture of a, of a bear this like really bad AI thing that I did. And then I took all the he we pitched a bunch of other character ideas. I sent I sent it to Nick Justice, who's the series artist. And Nick did some proper, you know, here's like character design work. Um, and my buddy, my little guy, he had, his name was Harlan. He had notes. He gave, he was like, I don't like the feather in his hat. He goes, he started watching YouTube videos about koalas, because one of the characters is a koala bear. And he goes, Dad, they have two thumbs, which I had no idea. I, I didn't know that that they have two digits in the other direction on their finger. So I had to tell Nick, you got to draw a second thumb on that guy. You know, my, my, my little guy had a note. And, um, you know, it, it just went from there. So Nick is doing the, you know, Nick is doing the art. He does the pencils and inks. Um, I've got a young guy called uh, Nathan Lawson who's doing the colors, which have been really awesome so far. He colored the two covers that are in the campaign as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's really great. And like Nick, Nick's a really talented guy. He does a lot of different... Um, you know, genres and, and kind of styles. So um, it's been really great. Well, to me, the AI part is not the star of that story here. What I love is that this is how the some of the great comics or the great stories in general wind up getting made is a bunch of people sitting around just throwing out ideas and suddenly, oh my God, this is something that we should work with. This is something we should play with. It goes from being a couple of words you try together, try it on for size to this has this has fireworks behind it. we got to do something with this and i love that yeah it's been really it's been really fun and like what's funny is he's a funny collaborator because he's only eight and he has no sense of time or how long anything takes so you know every every like i would say every two or three hours he's like are there more pages to look at did he do any more art and i'm like nobody <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way you got to give him a minute it takes a minute you know it's not it's not mid-journey he has to actually create it it's a whole thing you know um but you know apart from that he's been he's been great and you know i've always enjoyed that part of comics is that it's like a collaboration between you with your skill set and someone who has the other half of that skill set required to make a book and um you know it's kind of fun sharing that with my eight-year-olds who now he thinks I do this for a living now, you know, like I have a day job, but he's like, dad's a comic book guy. And I'm like, I kind of love that, you know? Well, you are. And the fact that that might not be exactly what keeps the lights on doesn't make you any less a comic book guy. Like that's I don't true. podcast 24 hours a day. I want to, um, yeah. haven't gotten there yet, but that's okay. Yep. I'm still a podcaster. You're still a comic yep. book guy. Thank you. That's, that's a really good way to look at it. I mean, just the fact that you want to do it, the fact that you put your your effort into that day in and day out. And I'm not just saying this to you. I'm saying this to anybody that has an ambition 
that maybe they haven't been able to push to the next level yet. The fact that you're at this level now, you're doing better than you were last week. That might be enough for today. Yeah, no, that's true. And and look, even if it never is something, you know, the guy, the guys at Blue Juice, um, they I try to remember the exact way they put it. They used to call it like the Blues Brothers financial um, system that they had in place, where it's basically like you you never make any money doing this. It's a passion project. Um, and you kind of have to be fine with that going into it. You know, you can't go into it like looking to get rich because really who who makes it and who doesn't isn't always a matter of who's the best storyteller and who's the best artist. And it's a combination of all those things you can't control. What I can control is I get to write these stories and, and find people I like to work with and have fun making the books. And so that's what I'm going to do. And we'll see what happens. And that's so great. That's, that's absolutely great. Like I said, it, it's... You go into it thinking it's a passion project. You go into it because you want to do the work. Because if you're not wanting to do the work, if that's not your primary goal, you're not going to enjoy it long enough to actually get the money out of it, if that's ever going to come. Right. You don't want to be yeah. miserable getting to that end, that end zone. Trust me. Yeah. I think one of the guys said making comic books is the art and going to conventions and doing the whole circuit and trying to build a following. It's the art of spending thousands to make hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and you know I've had a lot of fun doing it though, so and no no regrets. Well, the convention circuit is a circuit unlike any other. It, yeah. It's an experience, and, and once you've been to your first one and you feel the camaraderie there of being in that crowd of you know five ten thousand people who all have the same vibe about comics that you do, it changes everything. Yeah, I have the I have I have FOMO this year because I we the, my first few big conventions um, we did New York Comic Con. It's my first big one. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in New York and it was just a no brainer. It's right after COVID, and then I flew down to MegaCon twice, and then this year we decided not to do it. And it sounds like this year was like a really great year for specifically for small publishers. You know, they did they did really well there. Um, uh, I, but I've been hitting a bunch of. Where are you, by the way? Where physically? I'm out of Oklahoma world? City. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I I recently I did a convention on my own with Blue Juices, with Blue Juices like catalog. Um, two years ago, last year I did the Brooklyn Comic Con. That was really awesome. Um, and we've done the Garden State Co Comic Fest a couple of times in New Jersey. Um, I drove down to one in Fairfax, Fairfax Comic Con. Um, yeah, like I've I've just been trying to hit a couple of them to kind of get the experience and see. You know, where does it make sense? Where is it? Where is it worth it financially? Does it make sense to set up at a big one, or does it make sense to hit two or three smaller ones instead? Um, you know, just from a startup perspective, the big, big ones are so much fun, though. They really are. I've done uh, some of the fan expo shows the past couple of months. I did the one in Chicago and the one in New Orleans. Did a couple mm -hmm. live recordings there. And what I love about the way they set up their facility is that you can almost see this gradual transition from the people who are just getting started out at the artist alley through the people who have kind of hit their stride with the small time publishing to the people who are now like titans of industry it's 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 an almost seamless transition from one end to the other and that's very exciting to me to watch that gotcha yeah it's all the whole the whole experience has been a lot of fun i had so much fun at brooklyn comic-con i didn't have to go anywhere i didn't have to get in a hotel it's in my backyard um, you know, I made a lot of friends there and I've been talking to them ever since. And like a couple of them have led to podcasts. I met Ralph at the written, writ, writ, you know, bit, bit in Apple TV. Um, I've done a few shows with him now. Um, it's just been, it's so great. It's just, the whole thing has been like great and fun and everyone kind of comes into it with a chill attitude. Um, and the actual conventions themselves are just a group of people trying to put on a fun time for everybody else. It's such like an 
like um, what's the word? It's like almost altruistic. You know, of course, it'd be nice to walk away with a bunch of money in your pocket. But sure, if you walk away and you're like, I met a bunch of people, I made some connections, some people found my material, liked my stories. You know, that's a success, and that's great. Now, I want to ask you this because you you're uniquely qualified to answer. Um, I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of comic creators and I love their backgrounds, but you actually have a success story in TV production as well. And how do you, how much do you feel that the skill levels cross over between the two? What, what's the point where it's the same skill set you're using in both cases? I mean, I, I think that working in television for all these years, I, I, you know, I've done almost entirely unscripted, uh, unscripted stuff. So reality TV stuff. And you learn the same storytelling rules that you learn anywhere if you're taking screenwriting class if you're you know i've been taking i've been i'm in scott snyder's writing group on the, the on through his sub stack that he does so you know every month i listen to him and 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 we've been he's read some of my scripts and you know we get to meet with him and stuff and all the things that he talks about he actually talks about writing scripts the same way that my screenwriting classes used to those professors used to talk about a three-act structure and you kind of treat like a comic book arc the same way a three-act structure it's just there are kind of storytelling rules and when you're making reality tv you you kind of can't plan it as well because you're not writing it before you shoot it but once you get into the edit you're still taking the sort of the material that you filmed and you're telling that same story where you're you need a beginning you need to kind of set the tone for what it is you're doing you need something to happen that sets off the the story of that episode you need to resolve it by the end of the episode and you sort of, it's the same kind of storytelling technique as writing an episode, an issue of a comic book, an episode of television. Um, so I think the story, overall, the storytelling rules are the same, no matter what kind of story you're telling. I think what changes is, you know, I did a season of a show that was essentially a scripted series. And so I had to write a script, script format, screenplay format, final draft. And when you write, when you're writing for television, it's, you're writing a manual that you know 80 people from different departments have to take they have to take their information out of the manual they have to go build their props over here and the set over there and the wardrobe over there and then when they all come together a month later it all has to fit back together and it all comes from that manual that you wrote it's kind of a dry you know how to put together this episode of television whereas a comic book writing a comic book you're writing it for an audience of one it's just you and the artist so if you have a rapport with the artist, you can you can be vague and they can kind of fill in the blanks with their skill set. If you can say things like, I want this page to feel like this, I'm not sure exactly how I would lay it out, but you know, I know that you have a better mind visually than I do. So I'm gonna write it. But if you think it should be six panels instead of three, or it should be a splash page instead of two panels, you know, blow me away. And and I uh, very often they do, and that's awesome. So it's kind of a different, you know, you can't write that in a television screenplay, like a teleplay, like you'd get fired as a writer if you were mm -hmm. like, but I don't know what this scene is. Like you can't start a scene with like a sentence like that in a script. There's just no place for it. So, um, you know, that part of it's very different. Um, it's, it's, it's less um, mechanical, you know, writing. Um, it's a lot more fun actually. And it's, it's truly collaborative, which is great. So when it comes to collaborations, uh, the other book I have in front of me here is Cicada Samurai. Yeah. And I was wondering if that kind of came together the same way as the Grizzly Bear book did. So, the, I mean, Cicada Samurai, I just got really lucky. I had an idea 
it was during the pandemic. As we're coming out of the pandemic, um, I had a lot of higher anxiety about my kids being safe and and keeping them safe and all that. And my my oldest is 12 now, so he's more and more wanting to do things out in the world without us. And so just like worrying about he's walking home around a golf course near where I live and it's kind of dark. You know what I mean? Like it's that kind of thing. So you want to protect them all the time. And then that combined with in 2021, there was this enormous brood of cicadas that emerged and, you know, it was an unholy racket and everyone was talking about it. So I, I fell down an internet hole and I just started reading about cicadas and there were all these like fascinating things about them. Um, and they, you know, this one brood specifically emerges every 17 years. So they're underground for 17 years, just gestating. Then they live above ground for like three weeks, just long enough to find a mate and drop dead. And that's it. That's their whole life. They, they suckle at a tree root for 17 years. They get three weeks of daylight and they drop dead. And so if that, if that, if they don't get to do that though, the cycle can't continue. So I thought, okay, keeping my three kids alive is a full-time job. What if there were billions of them and I was the only adult? And so I kind of pieced all that together and I started looking at cicadas and they kind of looked like samurai armor. So I thought, okay, there's one cicada, he's immortal for six generations, about a hundred years. He's been protecting these millions of teenagers who are basically going out for prom night to make bad decisions. And his job is to keep them safe. And, and how insane will that be if he's the only one who has any life experience and he's trying to keep them all safe from boxes and birds. And there's a thing called the cicada killing hornet, which is just a real thing in the real world. It's a monster, what it does and how it kills cicadas. Um, and so I, I kind of just had this idea and I started writing it out and I, I got really lucky. I pitched it. I, I reached out on Instagram to Takashi Okazaki, who you know did Afro Samurai, and he replied. And like, you know, again, he's a big, he's a big name. He's, he doesn't need to talk to me. I'm nobody. But he replied and he was just like, dude, this is a hilarious, this is a great idea. Decadas are a big thing in Japan. I had no idea. And so we just started bouncing ideas back and forth. And he did my character designs um, while we were bouncing ideas back and forth. And then he got, he's been very busy. So he, he I knew he couldn't do the book. He wanted to do the character designs um, and some covers every once in a while. So that's what he's done. And then I and then I reached out to Mary Landro, who is a really talented artist as well, and she has a, a slightly less manga and a little bit more like anime style um, of art that she and so that's what I ended up with in the book. We kind of redesigned the characters a little bit to fit her style more. Um, they're still sort of based on what Takashi did, and then we did the first thing as a short story just to see if anybody was kind of interested in it. Um, it did pretty well on Kickstarter. Uh, I'm, I'm fulfilling the campaign now. I actually just sent the files to the printer a few days ago. So everyone will get those books in the next few weeks. And then, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. I'm working on a second script for the full, the full story arc. But that's the idea is that he's immortal and he has to protect these. Imagine being a parent of like a billion kids and you have to keep them all safe at the same time. And you're going to fail. Like some of them are going to get eaten by birds and ripped apart by praying mantises and things like that. Um, and you have to cope with that and keep going and keep the rest of them safe. And, you know, like a parent, you're going to fail. You have to work through it, come out on the other end and keep going. I So that's where that came from. Yeah. I, I, as far as the designs go, to me, this is the very, very He-Man looking concept. I could see this being on a blister pack at Kmart. For... Oh, yeah. In fact, yeah. If, if I could do that, I'd actually put this character in, in a He-Man scale just because it would be a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's a good idea. I got a lot of people who pointed out, I didn't think of this until afterwards. They pointed out that it was, it was very kind of Power Rangers. Okay. Um, I see that. You know, 
Yeah, very like he looked a little bit like somewhere between the Green Power Ranger and there's another character that's sort of from that same style of television show and 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 storytelling, all all you know Asian, all Asian in origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but a few people pointed that that out to me, and I was like, oh yeah, look at that. That is kind of cool. Yeah, and I mean, we're we're you said before we're all kind of in the same age group. We're all pulling from the same experiences as to what we thought was cool and what we thought worked. So we're just retooling some of these things for you know new stories down the road. And the stuff that we got, it was itself retooled from other stuff that was you know had come years prior. Yeah, I think I think that's always the case. You know, like Star Wars was really just George Lucas's love letter to you know pulp westerns that he used to watch as a kid mm-hmm. and like. And he just turned all those stories into, you know, this big thing that now, you know, people are writing stories that are based on Star Wars, which is based on something else, which is based on something that came before it, which is based on like little paper, you know, fake stories they made up when when uh, Wyatt Earp was actually still riding around on horseback, you know, sure. it all it all kind of gets recycled and re- reinterpreted and reimagined. And if you're lucky, you can kind of add your own unique spin to that that big story that we're all kind of telling together. Yeah, it's like uh, to use another Lucas example. Um, in, in Indiana Jones was a completely new concept in one sense. It was you know we didn't have Indiana Jones before Raiders came out, but at the same time, it was very much a deliberate homage to the cliffhanger serials that filmmakers up to that point had liked. So was it new? Yes. Was it not new? Also, yes. It it depends yeah. on where you want to put that line. You always take elements from things that you like, and you kind of. You know, combine them in a new way. I do that in television all the time. A lot of times, you're you're kind of, especially in reality TV. There's there's a lot of it, and so a lot of times, you know, I mean, let we could talk about comic book men since you're familiar with that. Sure. One. The I mean, the idea was they the network wanted a show that was structured like Pawn Stars. You know, and that was the original concept, and because it was AMC and they were they were the the network that brought us you know breaking bad and and mad men and they they let you experiment and be out there a little bit um we got to to do a version of that people come in and they and they sell what what they have they sell their collections of things for money in that way it's a lot like pawn stars but when you watch comic book men there's never an interview in the entire series there's never a sit down interview with any of the characters there's never you never do an interview what's called an otf an on the fly interview with any of the characters coming in and saying, I want to sell my Spider-Man, my Amazing Fantasy 15. I want to sell it. You never cut to an interview with that person. Instead, we have the podcast. We have That's how we get Kevin into the show. And so we got to kind of mess with the structure of what is a very familiar reality show and come up with something totally different and completely new. And you know, ultimately, people are still walking in and selling comics and selling collectibles. And so there's an element of Pawn Stars to it. But we also took the fact that Kevin was a huge podcaster at the time. He still is, obviously. But, you know, he was very big at, with it at the time. And um, we kind of made that its own new thing. You know, and that's kind of what I think that's what a lot of creation is. I like the Pawn Stars element because I, you know, I've seen my share of that show. But what really connected with me was I saw a big trend in this that was like almost Antiques Roadshow. Right. There was a real appreciation for the history behind these items, not just, oh, hey, we found something cool. It's like, well, yeah, but this was the first time that this happened or this was the first time that the audience felt this or the companies offered that. And that's what I see on Antiques Roadshow that came through in Comic Book Men. Yeah, I think it was it, on Comic Book Men. Again, what we got to add to it, that was an extra twist on that because Pawn Stars does that. You know, Antiques Roadshow does that. There's sort of an appreciation of the history and Comic Book Men definitely had that. But the additional thing is almost everything on that show 
came from their childhood. You know, like everything Walt got excited about was something he remembered playing with when he was 12 years old. Um, you know, and even like Ming was a little younger than the rest of the guys. And so was Mike. So, you know, they would they would have a slightly different memory. They would remember more things from like the later 80s and when they were young. You know, they were a few years behind. But but it was almost always like, you know, Kevin would remember when he used to watch that show that was on TV. They all remember the six million dollar man and the bionic woman, you know, and so those people would come in with those like like um the Mego, what are they called? The Mego toys, right? Yep. They would come mm -hmm. in with those. And, you know, like Walt would just be like really excited about it. And it was a genuine, it's genuine. You know, mm -hmm. he actually really enjoys that stuff. And, you know, so it, it had that additional element to it where it was kind of a bunch of friends talking about, hey, remember when we used to play this when we were in the eighth grade? Um, and that's a lot of fun. So, you know, it's, it kind of got to do all the appreciation of history, but also kind of add a, a friendly element to it, you know? Yeah. And I, I love those conversations, especially if you can get just a little variation in the ages like you have with the, with the Hess there. Like I say, um, I, I'd love to get people like at a convention, for example, have them walk down the aisle and have them walk down the merch and they will see something on a desk and some people will have no idea what they're looking at. And there's one person in the crowd is like, oh, my God. And it's a Christmas moment for them. Right. Yeah, that happens a lot of conventions, especially with the the more as cosplay has gotten more prominent, people will cosplay as their favorite new, you know, anime character. And then you've got a couple of more, you know, you got a lot of people who are our age who are kind of old school that still feel like, you know, these conventions used to be about comic books and just comic books. And um, so they'll see that and they'll go, what is what even is this? What What is that thing? What is Pyramid Head? I don't know what that is. You know, they get really like mad about it. And it's just it's the new geek thing, you know, like this is what happens generation. Like when, when, when Star Wars came out, when those movies came out, when, when, when people were reading, you know, Wolverine in the seventies and eighties, like it wasn't cool at the time, you know, it wasn't the cool thing. It wasn't main. I should say it was cool. Cause I would look back and say it was cool. It wasn't mainstream. And now all the biggest movies are based on those stories. So what's more mainstream than the Avengers, you know, what's more mainstream than Star Wars? Nothing. Those are the biggest movies in the world, you know, the biggest stories in the world now. So there's going to be something new, something new underneath it that we don't know about because our geek thing became the mainstream. So, you know, there's going to be something new and you're going to look at it and go, what, what is that? You know, this is supposed to be about sci-fi and like, that's it. You know, people get like, like a little grumpy about it sometimes, but um, I love it. And it means that like my kids, when they get older, are going to have those things will be the mainstream because those people grow up watching you know, those shows and like, and they're going to grow up and they're going to do the people grew up now reading My Hero Academia as opposed to, you know, Marvel superheroes. And, and so now those genres will take over the mainstream 15, 20 years from now when those people are the creators, you know, working for the people with the money. Um, and then there'll be a new thing and, and it'll be based on some other old thing. It'll be great. It's great. It's wonderful. It's a circle of life. And I'm hoping because of just what you mentioned there, the fact that there is now a space for the stuff that's brand new to take hold of the new generation, I'm hoping that's where comic projects like yours are really going to get their, their long life and they're going to get an audience that's built for them, not just now, but 5, 10, 20 years from now. I think there's room yeah. for that and I hope you have the success. Thank you. I I, I agree. I think I think that there's a lot of people who think of like they think of everything as some kind of existential threat to comic books mm -hmm. everything that comes along manga is on the shelf next to the comics and that pisses people off you know it worries them is what it really is because the thing that they love they feel like is going away but just some of the rules are changing like 
I, I love the medium. It doesn't necessarily need to be a floppy every month that's exactly 22 pages with a cliffhanger. You know, if you if you write your comic book as a 115 page graphic novel, it's a one shot graphic novel. I love that, too. It's still the same medium, you know, so I, I just don't I worry less about people who get like panicky that comics are dying or comics are going away. They're just changing. They're altering. You know, the audience is still out there. So it's harder for comic book shops to carry books like mine because I'm not I'm not consistently churning one out every month. I have a day job that I have to I have to I have to pay the bills so I can be on the internet with you right now, you know. Um, but it doesn't mean that the comics are dying because people are people are going online and finding Kickstarter, Indiegogo. They're finding you know, um, Zoop and Backerkit and all these other places where you can. Patreon and Substack, you can get comics directly in your in inbox. Like huge creators, Brian K. Vaughn has been writing a Substack comic book series for like years now. Um, you know, it's 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 just changing. The way it's financed is changing. The way that people who want to write indie stories can reach their audience is changing. Um, and I don't think that that's bad. I think it's just going to be a little different. And you know, we'll adapt and we'll take our stories and they'll adapt with us, and it'll be great. You brought this up and I almost have to throw it out there because I made the point like two or three episodes back on another chat, but I recently published a book called The Convention Survival Guide, which is basically mm -hmm. a travel guide for somebody who might want to go to a convention and hasn't had that kick in the pants to do it yet. And, and the point I was making is that when I was young and that was not yesterday, but it, was, it wasn't that long ago. Okay, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, not, we're that, not that old. We're no. not that old. Yeah. But yeah, at that point in time, I made the point that there were like maybe six big conventions and they were almost all based on comic books, Star Trek or Star Wars. Right. But now with the changes that you just talked about, we have dozens, if not hundreds of conventions throughout the United States of all sizes celebrating all sorts of things. And the reason that's happened is because we embrace more fandoms, because we're widening the tent. That's not an accident. It's a direct correlation that we're supporting more fandoms, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I don't think it's bad. It's it's everyone again. It's that thing where like some people will see cosplay or a convention where that's like the main attraction. They get mad about it, and you know manga and all the other things that they like. Video games shouldn't be there. It's like why not? Like why not? You know, it, I, I get I get it. It's called Comic Con, and it's not Game Con or whatever. But like, you know. I don't think other people's geek passion is ever a threat to yours. And as long as like people are telling good stories, like there are so many good storytellers who are very young, who are just getting started and who love this genre. And so they, again, they might not end up writing a, a, a cape or a tights story at one of the big two, you know, that comes out every month, like clockwork. They might not all end up being, you know, Tom King or Jeff Johns and 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 sort of being able to you know do that. Some of them are going to write more sporadically. You know they're going to write more. This happened in TV too. You know when 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 people here started watching British series more and more. British series don't come out on regular schedules. They don't. They're just like the, a new season of Luther comes out based on when Idris Elba is available to go and shoot two movies worth of material in, in the UK. You know, Sherlock would come out when they could schedule Benedict Cumberbatch and, and everyone else who's in that, that show. And they would do three episodes or six episodes or five episodes, whatever feels right for that story that they're telling that season. And no one gets mad about it. It just is a different um, structure for the same kind of storytelling. 
and it's not a threat. It just means it's changing. And that means that that could be for the better. We're in the middle of like a, a TV renaissance. There's millions of platforms. Anything you want to watch, you can find it somewhere online, somewhere, you know, on some streaming platform, on some channel, anything you want to see. And there's some really good version of it out there somewhere. And comics is just the same way now. If you prefer graphic novels, there's a million of those. If you prefer manga, there's a million of those. If you want to keep reading Batman forever, you can do that. There's 15 Bat books that come out every month like clockwork. Um, you know, and none of it is a threat to the rest of it. I just, I just don't see it that way. Well, I can't think of a better place to leave it. That is a perfect point to make. Jerry, where can people find you and find the rest of your adventures on the web? So all my comic stuff is at Thorny Comics. I'm, that's, that's me on Twitter, on Instagram. I believe I'm the only Thorny Comics on Facebook. Those are the three things I, I mostly use. Um, and then all my books so far are funding on Kickstarter. The one right now is The Grizzly Crew. Next week, um, I'm not sure when this will start, but The Grizzly Crew will run until the end of February. Um, and then I have another campaign running two weeks into March, uh, starting in the middle of February. And that's for Scott Snyder Presents The Cloakroom, which is an anthology series of short stories all written by people in Scott's class. I'm the editor and the publisher of that, along with my partner, uh, Veronica Howell. Fantastic. Jerry, thank you so much for being here. I'll be glad to have you back anytime. I wish you the best of luck on this Kickstarter. Thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate it. I would like to thank Jerry for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. I would like to make this my shout out to anybody who is thinking of taking a different creative path after already starting on one. Whether you're a musician thinking of breaking into film or a filmmaker thinking of breaking into comics or maybe a comic maker who might want to try their hand at making video games. Whatever the case is, I want to hear from you. Reach out to me at bossigpodcast.yahoo.com or find me on Instagram, Twitter, or Blue Sky at Aaron Bossig. Please check this show out, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcasting platform you can think of. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.